have to do uh, some sort of research for the, the, this is the rabbit hole that I went down, the Zodiac podcast. Not really, because I, you know, I spent almost 25 years just digging in and, you know, I, I realized that it was just time for me to get it all out. <laughs> and so I might look at one piece I remember reading from when I was, you know, 21 and then going, oh yeah, I can just go right back into that. It just comes naturally. I'm a true crime freak. Oh, nice. And Zodiac was a big case for me as well. I don't, I'm not sure at, at what age I was probably a teenager, but I'm not sure what linked me into it, but I've always had some sort of, it's, it's hard to use words like fascination without sounding like a, a weirdo, <laughs> but a, an interest in that case and the outcome of that case maybe is a good way to say it. Yeah. I, it's always that it was one that I think because my parents were of that generation, that it just has always been there. It's been one of the ones that affects me. And, you know, but really the one that turned me into sort of a, a generalized true crime fanatic instead of just someone who was terrified of the boogeyman was it was 100 years in 88 of the uh, Jack the Ripper case. Right. And that, that really, because all the specials that were on the two movies and uh, Peter Ustinov <laughs> doing his thing, that was all just, you know, that was my, my introductory moment. It seems like those two cases have a lot in similar, not only in the fact that the person wasn't caught, but there's almost like a comic book aspect to them as characters. You know, there's a mythology built around them that, that maybe you don't necessarily see in other cases. So I think maybe that's what makes them endure as well. Yeah, very, very true, especially for uh, Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. The, the Jack the Ripper, I mean, at this point, not that the murders weren't awful and terrible, but in in the grand scheme of things, it was a fairly minor crime compared to the things that we've seen, you know, like Bundy and uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and and things like that. But it's more the mythology that was built around it and, and what they call ripperology or we call ripperology that has really just exploded it into what it is. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's the, if you look at the wave theory of popular culture, true crime is really on its about fifth wave since the Ripper crimes, because the Ripper, people don't realize that that was the introduction of a lot of the first true crime magazine was the 18, late 1870s through about 1891. And then you had again in the 20s, and then you had again in the 50s, and then the 80s, and then today. <laughs> it's this, this sine wave going through history. It comes in, and then it, it burns itself out. It pushes itself too far. Or just, you know, I'm not sure about the, in the past, but at least in, in the eighties and right now, you know, it'll get to a certain point of sensationalism. Uh, maybe before that it faded out. I'm not sure. You might know a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, if you look at how things fade in and out, uh, what really happens is you get the, any initial reporting when it starts to fade from the front page. So with Zodiac, a great example. That was the beginning of a, ri of a rising period. And once he dropped off of sort of the generalized radar, he came back in with the, uh, the 20th anniversary coverage, which was right after the Jack the Ripper 100th. You had all of this coverage happening again and this just explosion. And of course, you have Unsolved Mysteries, which... Right. You know, it's always one thing that you can pick out that it has this, like, drawing. It's, you know, it's confidential in the 1950s. It's, uh, 
I guess in the twenties, it was just front page newspaper. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then today it's podcasting, you know, people will point to serial. I'll point to last podcast on the left. And, uh, yeah, that sort of, that sort of touchstone that everyone has. Yeah. The true crime podcasting. I'm not sure. It's, I think it's, it's kind of seems like it's kind of finally sputtered out into smaller tributaries. But for a while there, it seemed like every new big podcast was a true crime podcast. Now you're getting other kinds, and it's more of the middle-sized podcasts and smaller podcasts that are still dealing with true crime, which I would almost argue are the better shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get things like Dr. Death and uh, what was the other one I was listening to? Of course, Serial, that does all this, you know, that are big, big ideas. But when you get the littler ones, and particularly the ones that take true crime and mingle it with things like paranormal uh, research, basically doing the unsolved mystery thing. Right. Or the ones that I find really fascinating, the ones that take true crime and then mingle it with uh, psychology or uh, radio drama or something like that. You know, that gets you into all these other tributaries that are really fascinating. Speaking of the Zodiac, that psychology angle right there. I mean, there's... There's so much to be said about that case psychologically that doesn't make sense. Um, there's so many contradictions in, in what would be known as normal psychopathy, I would think. you know, For the most part, when you have someone committing crimes, violent crimes, you usually have an escalation, and it just keeps getting further and further. But if we are to assume that all of those cases were committed by the same person, you're actually seeing, going back to the word you just used, pulsing. He pulses forward and then pulses back and pulses forward and pulses back. Intimate, less intimate. Going going uh, with the Lake Berryessa attack, the knife. Yeah. And then he goes back to even the, like, the most impersonal of his crimes, which is the Stein murder. It's a taxi cab. Yeah. He's in the back seat, I believe. Is he in the back seat or is he in the front seat? He was in the back seat, but apparently Clem into the front seat for a bit yeah just to swipe part of the shirt and yeah which is crazy just that of all of them that is the one that is least in character right but it's also the only one we could say 100 percent was tied to the letters <laughs> so it's... both of those cases are strange in the sense that they're, they're both you know just so different you know like why the hood in in the lake Berryessa? yeah it never came back <laughs> yeah yeah, it makes sense because I because I really think he thought Michael Majot could have identified him, and he didn't want that to happen again. That just, that's the one thing that makes total sense is right. he blew it. He he got away with the perfect crime the first time. He went back; it didn't go quite so well. The third time, he said, "I'm going to cover my face," and when that only kind of worked. He then went to just, I'm just going to shoot a guy in a taxi cab when he can't look at me because he's, he's looking away and there's only going to be one of us. And which it's, it's a strange, it's a strange portrait into his mind. Assuming, like we said, assuming this is one person in the sense that usually when you are a psychopath, you don't have that level of control to be able to pull yourself back. You know, like you've decided you're going to use a knife. And I, I really believe he went to that scene knowing he was going to use that knife. That's why the hood, that's why the windbreaker, because those things could be taken off and put somewhere so that he can leave the scene clean. You know, I, I really believe that, that that's a strange, those two attacks are so strange 
in the sense that they don't necessarily mean you know, like, okay, the couple thing still works, but yeah. then you go to a single person, you know, all these weird contradictions. I think maybe that is what makes that case so enduring for me is the psychology, not necessarily the letters and all that, though that does play into it. Mm-hmm. But I was just, I was so pleased to see that uh, that's something that we, we shared knowledge on. Yeah. It's a really, it's a real, it's an area that is now okay to be into again. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I think that the eighties surge, like you mentioned, there was this, you know, we also at the, in the eighties we went through, which might also be related to unsolved mysteries, the satanic panic. Yeah. You know, where there was all these these fake news stories about uh, fictional satanic cults uh, murdering children and all of these things. Uh, I think that that kind of played into the way that true crime was pushed off in the 80s. was like, oh, if you were into true crime, then you're obsessed with murderers and killers. Mm-hmm. And now what we're seeing is maybe because of podcasts, because podcasts are more intimate and people have time to explore subjects for longer periods of time rather than a 40-minute episode broken up by uh, advertising and so forth, you can see more of the human aspect and more of the, oh, this is about trying to understand what's going on here. You know, whatever the the angle it is, whether it is I'm trying to understand the human mind more or I'm trying to understand the victims and what happened here. Yeah. And you you see a lot more of that now, which is nice. Very nice. One of my main, my reasons, Detra, for uh, for the one for Zodiac speaking. And then for the next one I'm doing called uh, not less dead, which is going to be an examination of typically women of color who have been murdered and actually talking about their lives as opposed to just their murder. Right. That's the beauty of podcasting is that you're able to have the leeway to do that and not have to worry about like, Oh, I won't do this because I will only get this percentage of the audience and all these things that had gone into whatever prevented people from doing these things before, from going into the more human interests side of it and really understanding people. And it's, it's, it's kind of really, it's refreshing to know that that's possible and that people are still hungry for that, that people still want to hear those things. Oh, absolutely. So what actually led you into true crime? You know, like what, what is it about true crime that drew you in initially? You know, you touched on it a little bit more, but I want to go, I mean, a little bit earlier, but I want to actually go into like the experience there, you know, like, what was it like for, you You know, how old were you? And, you know, however you want to go into that. I was probably five to seven. Well, for me, true crime flows through paranormal and other sort of weirdness, I guess the best way to put it, because I suffered really bad sleep paralysis as a kid. So, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, unable to move, and I would see things walking around my room. Uh, and that would mess you up as a kid. <laughs> but uh, what happened was, I, you know, I started looking at UFOs and aliens and all sorts of monsters and things. But my mom and dad both used, uh, you know, you got to be home by dark or the Zodiac will get you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and I get it. They were, you know, they both would have been 15, 16 during the killing. So it makes sense. And so it was always sort of in the mind. But then it was that that 1980s explosion because I was a once Unsolved Mysteries happened, I started watching it because they talked about UFOs and ghosts and stuff. But then they also had the true crime aspect. And 
Factory anymore. And then once 88 came about and you got the Jack the Ripper stuff coming through and then the 25th anniversary of JFK and there was this inundation of media stuff. And I really point to a very particular, I think it was called uh, Jack the Ripper Unmasked where they had four Ripperologists, one guy from the FBI who was a profiler, someone from Scotland Yard's Black Museum, uh, just four, four individuals talking about who uh, one of five suspects who it was, and it was hosted by Peter Ustinov. And that, that drove me in, and I started reading everything I could about the Ripper. And that led me to, because a lot of the stuff that covered the Ripper also covered Zodiac. And I think that was when I first encountered Braysmith's work. And then uh, when the movie JFK came out, that was it. It was just, you know, lifelong film geek who now had this conspiracy theory I could chew on. And I spent a lot of time reading about how all of this sort of crime research was happening into Jack the Ripper into Zodiac, because a lot of people forget that 91, 92, and 93 saw a lot of claims of people saying, you know, their stepfather was the Zodiac. And then, of course, that happened way more often in like 2008, 9, 10, when you saw like the hotel and all that. But it really was that sort of late 80s, early 90s period where it was out there and it was in the popular culture and it was in the zeitgeist. And I was just gobbling it up, you know, as a junior high and high school kid. It seems like that was the first time where it was like socially somewhat acceptable, at least to be airing those things. I think that, you know, you had so much censorship on TV before that. Mm -hmm. And I I, I believe you're right. I believe it was called uh, Jack the Ripper Unmasked. I remember that show um, or that special. It was John Douglas that was the FBI guy on there. Yes, it was. The basis for... uh, Holden and Mindhunter, the TV show based on his book, technically, yeah. based on his book, sort of. And I know the guy that they did the interviews for from uh, the Ripperologist from London was David Fido, who is like my research hero in all areas. He's <laughs> arguably the smartest person who ever lived. Um, he's, he's incredible. And the, one of the proudest moments I ever had was uh, I was uh, doing an online session that he was in, and I I put out my premise that one of the, the Goulston Street graffiti was the most important thing because it showed that the Ripper wasn't uh, in control of Whitechapel like he always thought he was. And he, and he just typed, that is a point I never would have considered. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I'm done. Do anything else. <laughs> It'd be like sitting down with wrestler and wrestler going, hmm, interesting insight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love diving down this rabbit hole and staying in it because it's it's something i don't get to talk about very often you know like like we said even though it's becoming more socially acceptable it still has a certain stigma to it yeah i wonder what it is about true crime you know like you brought up the the pulse theory you know obviously the 20 20 approximate 20 years um 20 to 30 years probably has to do with generations you know kind of like with star wars star wars comes back Mm-hmm. At the time where the people who grew up watching it are adults and they introduce their kids to it. Yeah. But what do you think as a, as a whole for culture it is that holds us to true crime, that brings us back to it? It has, I think one, it naturally has to do with technology, I think, in that you have, uh, 
you have this new idea of the inexpensive uh, tabloid and magazine uh, that you're seeing first in the 1880s and 90s, and then later, of course, in the 1920s. Uh, in the 50s, you have the exceptionally inexpensive pulpy, uh, which is a new printing method that allows it to be done incredibly, incredibly cheap. And then, of course, you also have television, which is giving you now news. On the other side of that, of course, once you get to the 80s, you have cable TV. And you saw a lot of really interesting cable stuff that was based on true crime. And you had, on network, you had Unsolved Mysteries, which was slightly sanitized true crime. But then, of course, once you get the internet, and you had Usenet starting up in the very early 80s that was really reaching a, a bubbling point in 88, 89, 90. You had a very early internet by the 94, 95. But then once you get you know, the ability for RSS and all of that to be simple enough that everyone can do it, it leads people to remember those moments. But I think one of the big things that really it speaks to, it is generational, but it is also somewhat incidental based on the fact that so much content is needed and a major event will happen. So when, you know, in the 1880s and 90s, it was Jack the Ripper happened and all this coverage could happen and there was a new technology to take advantage of that. In the 20s, Prohibition, the mob, you had this new technology of, an ex- of more expensive magazines and I could take advantage of that. In the 50s, you had, you had sort of a, a really interesting thing happening in that you had this very inexpensive stuff and you had people who were 100% without scruples. <laughs> and having that made it possible to do another, another whole layer. And you had some of the, you know, you had the Black Dahlia, you had all those uh, crimes of the 50s. You had another wave of uh, organized crime coming through and you had the Red Scare. And all of that, I think, played into true crime, uh, particularly the spy cases. Of course, in the 80s, you, we'd had the anniversaries. We had the, uh, we had Mick Martin. We did have the Satanic Panic. We had all of these concepts that needed to be delved into, and particularly in the Bay Area, because, you know, we had massive amounts of coverage on all of the different, uh, the sex allegations up in Sausalito. The, what was it, the Mount Diablo uh, cult, supposedly. And so we had all these things happening. And we had cable TV and slightly lessened censorship going on that allowed that to be taken advantage of. And of course, in 2010, you know, we just happened to have the internet so we could look into everything that had happened before. We finally had access to, you know, hundreds of years of true crime information for the first time in an easily digestible form that then people just decided to curate into their own material. So first it started with blogs, of course, Michelle McNamara, amazing work there for wonderful example. You had the great early sort of podcasty radio type shows that were, uh, the internet radio shows were wonderful. And then you had, once you had podcasting come forward, really it was, the blossoming of the iTunes podcasting app in addition to having big name true crime podcasts like Serial that really allowed that to take off. And it's an attraction, you know, 
one, what was a great saying I just heard the other day? Um, we're better defined by what we fear than what we love. It's your tribes are traditionally based on your taboos less than what you worship. And that idea that, you know, it is, we define ourselves by what we fear. And thus, fear itself will always be an attraction. There seems to be like this attempt to create, you know, scientists refer to the, the idea of the theory of everything, almost like there's some societal theory of everything. Like, oh, if we can connect this kind of crime and this kind of crime and, and this bad thing that happened over here, then we can understand how, how all of this works. You know, almost like, you know, like when, there's a, when there's something like a disease or a foreign object in the body that we attack it and try to kill it or root it out or remove it. And it's almost like the obsession with true crime is like this, this attempt to make order out of what is inherently disorder, that there's something in the human mind that cannot accept that sometimes there's chaos. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And I think at the, on the, the flip side also exists, this idea that we can accept that there's chaos as long as we ourselves are not chaotic. Right. By looking at the chaos, we know we're not chaotic. So we can stare into the abyss as much as we want and not worry about it looking back. Yeah, that could be seen in the tendency for people to refer to serial killers as monsters. Yeah. Because we want to remove, remove them from humanity. They're, no longer, they're not humans because a human being cannot be capable of such things. And uh, the argument could be made that that's to our detriment because when we... When we remove that from the human picture, then we prevent ourselves from being able to understand what causes it and how to prevent it. And I think the opposite also is true, too, that I think we need to be able to accept monsters as human, that even the monsters that are outside of ourselves have aspects of humanity to them. And I think that's much to our detriment because you can look at, like, literally, if you look at uh, a bear, you see a bear as a remorseless eating machine that all it wants to do is sustain itself. But once you start adding in human aspects, such as it wants to defend its territory, it wants to uh, nurture its young, it wants to take out a clop of the earth to make its own, it becomes more understandable. It becomes more dealable, really. And that idea, I think, you know, calling them monster is, to me, fine, as long as you recognize that there are human monsters, that every monster has some sort of level of humanity to it, if you want to put humanity, you know, as a sort of broad, nebulous idea that there are, there is an overarching goal of life and a reflection more than just pure reaction. We talked about the supernatural and um, UFOs and aliens. I do like to differentiate between the two because it seem, people seem to think those two things are synonymous. <laughs> Yeah, which is weird. Yeah, I mean, a UFO means I didn't know what it was. That's all it means. <laughs> but when you when you think about those things, do you also apply that anthropomorphic point of view to them as well? A little bit. Um, and if you think of of this idea that that maybe there is a it's not just levels of sentience, but it's levels of accepting a sentient. Humanity accepted sentience. We know what we are and what we do, and we can accept or reject elements of it. Whereas we don't know about, you know, aliens, ghosts, all of that. 
if they do that. And it, it concerns us, I think, that one of the reasons why ghosts are, are terrifying instead of the ultimate affirmation that there is something beyond this after we die is we literally don't know what their reason is. We don't understand how they operate or why they are. And so we don't know if there is any level of humanity left in them. But we kind of think there is because when you hear ghost stories, they all have very similar elements to them that seem to be hearkening to at least an element of a human experience. And I think that's really a, a fascinating idea. It makes it difficult to take into account someone's story of, of something that they've encountered supernaturally when you see that they're probably to some degree feeding their own humanity into it. That, like you said, it, from our point of view, we have no idea. You know, I'm not advocating to say these things exist or they don't exist. I am completely in the middle on all of these things. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cynical believer. Let me put it that way. I believe it's possible, but I'm really cynical about most cases. But when you, you hear the stories and then, you know, like the loved one came to visit them after the grave, and it's this beautiful interaction, it's hard not to look at that and go, that's just wishful thinking, because that's the only thing of substance to the story is the emotional core to it. Yeah. And I, I feel like that is one of the most difficult things when talking about topics like this, because to say that you don't believe somebody's story like that is you're not arguing over fact anymore. You know, now, now you're insulting them and their being, their belief, their loved one. I mean, we have similar problems with politics, of course, too. It's a human problem that we just, we can't, uh, we can't talk about things without uh, pissing each other off. <laughs> Very true. I'm curious, does, does any of this interest in the supernatural play into your interest in science fiction? Yeah, I think it really, I think there are two things that are, are very, very early in my life that I've carried through. I, I, I do think that the, the supernatural stuff came first. And it was because as a youth, I could accept so much, as, so much that was beyond our regular, you know, view that it made me very easy to assimilate ideas from science fiction, from fantasy, from horror. And I think that's one of the big, one of the big tie-ins is, you know, if you look at it, you know, ghosts are fantasy, uh, UFOs are science fiction, and uh, Bigfoot, serial killers, whatever, is horror. Um, yeah, Bigfoot might not be horror, but <laughs> I love Bigfoot. <laughs> but uh, this idea that there is more to to the world, and I know people who just cannot stomach genre fiction in the speculative fiction realm, particularly science fiction, because they are so rooted in a world that they can see and interact with. And, you know, me always being interested in this world that I can't see and interact with always made it very easy for me to connect with fiction that took place in worlds I have no experience of myself. It's interesting to also see that people, you know, reject genre fiction, but at the same time, most of the advancements in society and culture have come out of genre fiction. In the 50s and in through the 60s, maybe even if you push it all the way to the 70s, the closest thing to philosophers that we had, other than the few academics that people still paid attention to, were 
science fiction writers. You know, uh, people like Arthur C. Clarke, of course, is going to be the first name that comes up. Yeah. Theories, theories and ideas of, of the internet that existed before we even knew what an internet was, mm-hmm. you know, um, like William Gibson's work and stuff like that. These ideas that really led to the way that society was shaped, but these were genres that were scoffed at. You know, it's kind of analogous to, I know that you're interested in comic books and so am I, um, analogous to the idea of comic books that people thought it was just ridiculous and for kids and now it's mainstream. People have realized, like, oh, these are human stories, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting to see how these these things that happen at the fringes can either um, be accepted in the case of comic books or kept at the fringes and denied the effect that they have on society the way science fiction is. And that's really, really this whole idea of the high and the low. I think is really what it comes down to the the idea of what is considered a high art or a high craft or something like that morphs. And typically it's because as youth, you have less access or even just less appreciation of the high form. You aren't seeing a lot of five and six-year-olds at operas, but you are seeing a lot of them at the movies watching The Little Mermaid. And as they grow up, they look for ways to not just get into the high, but to bring an element of what they remember from their youth. And so, you know, you see this in a lot of areas, and comics is actually a really good one. Comics has had this strange sort of, again, sort of a wave, where it starts out with relatively simple morality, relatively simple concepts in a way, but they, and that's, sounds like I'm putting it down, but it really is a idea that there's a universality to uh, the comic, particularly of the 40s and 50s, that there's some complexity there, but it's not the complexity we saw in the 80s when you started to see characters like Swamp Thing by Alan Moore and all that work, where things got very, very complex in the mainstream. But then what happens is uh, that sort of wave crests at some point. And then you start to see a return of this sort of this desire for the splash buckle, I guess is the way to put it. It's the idea that we can go backwards a little bit while still incorporating elements of what we remember when we were first coming up. Because without, you know, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison doing what they did in the 80s and 90s, you don't get today's superstars who are combining elements of the high and the low uh, in Things like Matt Fraction, for example. Amazing work is being done that is taking elements of, you know, the best that have ever been created and some of the worst. You know, if you look at, if you ask people, you know, what were the first comics you remember reading, they're not typically going to say Watchmen. They're going to say Donald Duck. Or they're going to say, you know, Teen Titan. Or probably, they're probably going to say the X-Men, which... But it's this idea that you want to bring the things that got you into it with you when you become a creator. And I think that same thing happens to the audience. You always want to have some element of what first, not only first attracted you, but what first converted you into being a fan. What's fascinating about comic books, too, is you see the the ability for that complexity to 
to evolve from, like you said, very rudimentary ideas. I mean, like when you look at some of the early comic ideas, it's like, it's like something they spent four minutes of thinking about. Yeah. You're like, Oh, this, this guy does that. Why? I don't know. Cause I want him to, but over decades, you see the complexity evolve that these characters become something else. I mean, like if you look at uh, the second wave of the Avengers, the roster of the Avengers in that second wave is essentially just your typical fantasy characters. You know, you have Captain America, a paladin. You have Iron Man, a knight. You have Wasp, a fairy. You have Ant-Man, a giant. You have Hulk, you know, the ogre. There's all of the, uh, the archer, you know, you have all of these things. And it's just that simple. That's about as much thought that was put into it. And then you look at Civil War, the movie. Yeah. Where you're using Captain America and Iron Man to show a political rift over what essentially is a metaphor for terrorism mm-hmm. and safety. To see that complexity given something, given that amount of time. And obviously that has a lot to do with uh, many different people having their hands in it over over time. You know, somebody has this run, and then when the next person comes in, of course, in some way, that's going to affect their run. It's, it's really fascinating. I think one of the only other places that I can think um, that you can see that is with Doctor Who. Another Another concept put through many hands over a long period of time that evolves from a children's show to a popular adult show. And, yeah, Doctor Who's actually an excellent example of a whole lot of things um in a way you can also see it going in the reverse to a degree uh and actually in sort of weird things with the universal monsters concept and it's this idea that when universal monsters came up most people don't realize this they were very adult film and your frankensteins your draculas they were not geared towards youth at all and in some places they were restricted to you know 16 plus it was when they hit television that they began to attract the younger, the teen audience, really. And then when you get to the point where those teens who were inter- interacting with, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman through like creature features and Elvira and all that stuff, when they started having kids, that's when we started to see the introduction of things like uh, Monster High, uh, the use of uh, Hotel Transylvania the use of these characters within a realm that is, uh, you know, kid-friendly because it's something that they want to share with their kids from their youth. And it's sort of a a passing on of that knowledge. And, you know, those kids are going to grow up to have that idea that, you know, oh, these are just things that are in the world that we interact with and we can, you know, play with these concepts. It's a really, it's a fast, I'm, I'm seeing it a lot with my own kids that, you know, the stuff I loved as a kid, I want to share with my kids, but I know that the stuff that I was interacting with as a kid is not appropriate for them yet. Uh, and so I have to find the dumb down <laughs> which is, you know, which is fine. It's a really interesting sort of way that it works both up and down the ladder. And I think that's a really, that's what's fascinating about the world of of the creator right now is all directions have an audience is what it really comes down to. And there are more ways to tap into an an individual audience than ever before. And that is really making it possible to do some amazing stuff. 
it also makes it hard to find that stuff sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. I don't remember what I was reading, but there was a reference to Johnny Carson's incarnation of The Tonight Show. And somebody said something along the lines, obviously I'm paraphrasing since I don't remember who said it, that that TV show was the last time that all of America was watching the same thing. That there used to be this idea of mass culture in the sense of mass culture was more unified, maybe is a good way to say it. Now what we know is mass culture is just if it's popular with a bunch of people, it's part of mass culture. But before it used to just be like one thing, you know, like this was the movie, this was the TV show. And it's, it's really fascinating to see. I think we're like what you said, we're going to another phase where there no longer may even be a mass culture. They're just going to be mass mediums, you know, like Netflix is the mass culture, but not necessarily the shows. Everybody's going to be in their little different pockets. And not necessarily siloed out. I don't want to um, insinuate a negativeness there. But uh, I think that in, because of that access and because of that, things spreading out almost like veins from an artery, you know, they're just going smaller and further and deeper. It allows people to jump from one to the other more. So they're not stuck in those one places. Um, you know, somebody who's into true crime can also uh, be into comic books, can also be into something else that I can't think of right now that's completely different. Yeah, that's actually what's great right now. There's a great true crime podcast called My Favorite Murder, and their fans are murderinos. And what they do at the beginning of their podcast is they talk about Facebook groups uh, that are murderinos who are into other things. So like vegan renos, uh, vegans who are also <laughs> murderinos, uh, vegans who are really into Game of Thrones. And it's, you know, it, they see this crossover. And I think what is going to happen, though, I think really is, I don't want to say platform specificity, but I think at some point the pricing for Netflix, Hulu, is going to sort of lock people into one, maybe two realms. Because I don't see them going the particularly if they keep producing material at the, not only the rate that they are now, but the quality that they are now. I think prices in general are going to have to go up. And so people who are going to have to choose what route they're going to go, if they're going to be a Netflix house. Because if you look at cable companies back in the day, no one had both cable and satellite. They had one or the other. And I think we're going to get to that point. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that because the only two people that are really ready for the, like if that happened tomorrow, I think the only two mediums that are really ready for that to happen tomorrow are Netflix and HBO. They're the, they're the only ones that are really putting out enough stuff. You know, Amazon's working really hard, but they're not up to the level of Netflix. You know, like they've made some quality shows, don't get me wrong, but they're not putting out as much stuff. They're not acquiring as much stuff. That's another thing too, isn't Netflix also acquires a ton of things that they didn't even produce, um, bringing in foreign shows. Like there's a great show from, I think it's Germany called Dark. Oh, yeah. That's a great show. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. I haven't actually watched it, but I, I was reading one of the, because uh, it was mentioned on the show I was watching. I was like, oh, I got to look into that. And then I just never got around to it. But uh, I think one of the... That's great. Yeah, I think Hulu could have been... Uh, I think four or five years ago when they were acquiring everything and they still had the Criterion Collection and all of that other material, I think they could have really battled with Netflix 
had they come up with a more unified route instead of being the glorified uh, whipping boy for their individual owners to try and get their material archived really well. <laughs> I did cry when they lost the Criterion Collection. That was hard. I I watched, you know, I literally would probably watch Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers twice a month because of it was on Hulu. In in all the years I wanted to see as many Akura Kurosawa films as I could find, it was a slow going until that. Yeah. And then I and then I ripped through like seven in like a weekend. <laughs> but I th- I think that Hulu's gonna be okay because I think that if I if I'm gonna make a guess here about them is I think that they decided they don't want to do what Netflix is doing. I think they're actually feeding into the old Netflix model of fine, you wanna go see new shows, go to Netflix. The old stuff that you've been wanting to rewatch, we have that. And it, it's, I mean, it's not fully there. They're obviously, like you said, pulling in different directions. But I think that if they, if they did that, then they could both subsist at the same time. It would be pretty smart, you know, because like, yes, I want to see uh, the new season of the Punisher when they, if they make a second season of the Punisher, I'm going to watch that, but I'm still working my way through all 900 episodes of One Piece, mm-hmm. which the only place I'm going to be able to watch that is on Hulu. Yeah, and that is going to determine, I think, pricing levels more than anything. Is I think Netflix will realize very soon that you know we have all this original content, we can bump up our access prices much higher than Hulu, which basically is going to be focusing on the. I don't want to say lower end, but the the past. And I think they'll see that as more of an archive idea. So they, they're also not putting as much money technically into acquiring, so they can operate at a lower level. And I think they, they both could exist. It will be, it will have to, it will basically mean Hulu can't have a CEO who with grandiose ideas, I think is what it comes down to. Yeah, you need like a you need a business minded person and not an an aspirational uh, forward thinker. You need someone who's going to come in there and go, "This is how we're going to make money." <laughs> you need like basically the CEOs that, that Disney has had, you know, not recently because they have a, they have great leaders now, but you know, your Michael Katzenbergs and stuff like that that are just trying to stay just a little bit above the water. <laughs> They're just willing to make enough money to keep the business going. They need someone who sees the who doesn't want to be a leader as much as they basically they they have to avoid a steve jobs in a number of different ways (laughs) right they need more of a tim cook yeah well that's true that's true i like tim a lot (laughs) he's good people (laughs) you know it's interesting that we somehow made our way around to computers because i've been thinking for years and and being that uh you have a lot of uh, interaction with computers and, and people in the technology world. Be interested to hear your input on this. We need the, the model of Hulu that we just described of computers. We need the computer company that comes out and says, um, same with phones. Here is the new model of this, our new model. It's technically two-year-old technology, but there's no bug in it at all. It works perfectly. We took that technology and we perfected it. And we're willing to be behind the curve. We're not the cutting edge. We're the stable, reliable. And there have been attempts at that, uh, mostly on the software side. Um, 
the, the classic example of someone that even recognized that was when uh, DBase 2 came out. The reason they called it DBase 2 was because if they called it DBase 1, everyone would assume it was still buggy and DBase 2 would have fixed it. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, they did an amazing job of engineering it not to be cutting edge, but to be just below it. So it wasn't the buggy problem. But you're absolutely right. I would love to see a company that, I mean, I guess you could say by the time anything gets to the third tier producer, once you've gone through your, you know, back in the old days, when it's gone through Apple and IBM's exclusivity and it's gone down to the, you're getting it off of Dell and Gateway, once it's gone to the step below that, which used to be Lenovo and Asus and all those smaller putting a lot less into R&D than into gimmicks like eMachines, a great example of that. They used to be able to carve out a great job, but we've seen something very strange happen uh, throughout the history of computing, which I love, is that the computer you want to do what you want to do still costs the same today that it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's always $2,000 for what you want. I 100% have seen this throughout my career. It's, you know, no matter what I want to be able to do, it's always going to cost me $2,000. <laughs> it's amazing. And if you look at, you know, how much does it cost for a, you know, a kid's college uh, term paper writing computer? Well, it's always going to be $1,200. And, you know, I remember that from when I was a kid. I remember that from when I sent Evelyn off. Uh, it's, the, it's the same number. And I think that's a smart way to do it because it gives a, a generalized idea that Moore's Law applies not only to processing power, but to the actual number you are willing to spend to get to do what you want to do. And it's inflation that's actually that's actually the curve that's determining the value for your for your money. You kind of see that a little bit. I think um, you're seeing Apple begin to do that a little bit. You know, you can see it a tiny bit with with the introduction of there being three phones now, right? But more so, I'm thinking with the low end iPad. You know, the iPad Pro and then the iPad. Yeah. Like, okay, this is technically the iPad from two years ago. But it's only $400. And they're setting that up kind of as a, a price tier. You know you're always going to have an entrance into a tablet with us at 400 And it seems like maybe the rest of the market might follow that as a model of, okay, entry level. I mean, they kind of have to, right? If you're going to compete in the tablet market, at least Apple's the one you have to compete against. There's almost nobody making as many tablets. So now you're going to see more people aiming for that price or maybe even a little bit under to try to undercut them. And I think if Apple realized anything from its wandering through the wilderness in the 90s, it's that they can, they can stop trading on being the best technology and start trading on being Apple. And I think that has very much helped. It's really a big thing, I think, now, is they realize that they can release garbage and there are Apple aficionados who will buy it in en masse without question. Right, and I think Tim Cook is the one who really 
has been the first to realize that, you know, one of the problems with, with technology companies right now is there's such a hunger for tech right now that they're always pushing themselves to the bleeding edge. You know, that's why you end up with Samsung phones with exploding batteries because they were pushing too fast, too hard. And then it happens. And I think Tim Cook has realized that. And what you're starting to see is more this post model of innovation from Apple. It's like, we're going to make something new and it's going to be cool, but it's probably not going to come for two years. So for two years, you're going to have this object is going to be mediocre. You know, it's, it's going to be just inter- incremental additions, you know, like they did with the iPad pros. It's like, uh, they ignored it for like, it was like three and a half years, but, and then now they're going, okay, now we're working on that again. And they're starting to make better processors for them. You know, the iMac, now they have the iMac pro like, oh, wow. And then supposedly the Mac, you know, something that's been neglected for, I think, four, four and a half years. Now, all of a sudden, the Mac is going to be this um, supposedly modular, amazing computer that has to somehow blow the iMac Pro out of the water. But in the meantime, you have to go through those years of just incremental upgrades. You know, the iPhone this year, not a huge upgrade. It's still faster. It's still the, the camera is supposedly still amazing. You know, they're still going to give you something to chew on, but at the same time, it's not going to blow your socks off and make everybody run out to go get it the way the 10 did. Yeah, and I think one of, the, one of the things that's interesting is that what that allows to happen is it makes it possible for software companies to have a reliable idea of what a consumer's interaction with a device will be because it is. It's actually endlessly annoying for a lot of uh, applications when you end up on a having a software that is designed to run on a certain processor speed that is then dealing with uh, sometimes even having to go as far as downclocking to be able to work properly. And so if you have a longer lifespan with a set of specs, that helps everyone across the board as far as software goes. And, and for, to a lesser degree, peripheral. Right. I can't imagine, you know, writing the software. First of all, you're trying to rush because now everything seems to be on a yearly. You know, if you don't have something out in a year, people think you're inactive. Yeah. So you got to get something out in that time. But you know that the moment you let it go, <laughs> it's going to be not the top of the line. You know, it's going to be there for two or three days. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be a new device. I assume that. Uh, this is something, a pain that iPhone, iOS app makers feel all the time. Like, awesome, I just pushed out this new feature. Oh, great, iOS 12's out. Now i got to incorporate all those things. <laughs> yeah. They're always playing catch-up. So, yeah, I think that you're right, that, that there's a certain level, you know, like, if we open our phone every day and, you know, we had to upgrade our apps every four hours or something like that, at a certain point it just becomes obnoxious and it no longer has the effect that it had before. So being able to do them in phases and you know, have, have that pulsed sense, it's, it's really fascinating. I wonder, like, seeing all of this, I'm, I'm seeing all this just as a, as a consumer. Has working at the museum altered your view of tech in the tech world? Oh, God, yes. It has made me more leery of it. <laughs> I think it's a big thing. But it's also made me more questioning of 
what it is we are trying to actually do with an individual device. And I think it has less to do with understanding the history of technology so much as understanding the artifact, the artifactuality of something. And for example, the iPhone, I was very resistant to the iPhone for a number of years uh, because I couldn't figure out how in my life it would interact with my space. I had a flip phone. It did exactly what I needed to do. It let me send text messages if I hit a button a few times and it let me, let me make phone calls. Uh, and it wasn't until I saw the idea that it, it was a device that allowed me to bend my knee as well as expand my want. And once I realized that, the, that this object can do this thing, and within my life, I have these things I would like to do and these things I need to do, and this is how I could fit them into that. Once I understood the object, both the hardware and the software in this case, then I really understood it and I had to have it. <laughs> but it really is interesting to see where tech has come from and how the design consideration in particular of any object affects not only its use, but its unexpected use. And that's always something I'm always looking at is how can I turn X, Y, and Z into something else when it inevitably doesn't do the thing I really think I want it to do anymore. You know, the iPhone, the first iPhone I got was an iPhone 4. And when I could use it to do 90% of what I wanted anymore because I dropped it water, I realized that one of the things it could still do was play music. And as long as I plugged it into something and that became the kid, uh, that became the kid's music server, basically. <laughs> It's this idea that, you know, I'm one of those people who I want my technology to have a long tail. And this is sort of what I, I consider to be the university model. Universities don't buy anything that they expect to be uh, put out to pasture in five years. They buy something that they expect to use seriously for five years and then have another five to ten years just sitting around with people doing some stuff on it. That's what I want my technology to be. I want it to be the next. I want it to have a next phase always. And that's harder and harder because it's, there's technology build, being built less and less to achieve that goal. Yeah, that's very true. Is there's no there's no more clear proof of that than in the leasing of cell phone. Um, I'm not going to say that I don't do it. I definitely do it. But the idea of okay, this object is not even mine. It doesn't matter. I just need it to use it for this period of time until I get the next one. And then that one's only until I get the next one. And it's, it's an interesting thing. I think we can see the prototype for it in the car market. The idea of the people who refuse to ever lease a car because they want to own it. Like my uncle's like that. You have to buy a car because then when you pay it off, the years that you get from the point that you pay it off until the point that you sell it or need to get rid of it, that's where the car's value actually comes in. And it's, it's interesting to see that that car model, that leasing car model has become kind of the technology standard almost. 
I, I wonder how long until we're able to, it's been done before, but to successively on a large scale, lease computers. I think what we're going to end up seeing is a secondary market like we did in the era of punch cards. Uh, when IBM had a 90% grasp on punch card equipment, when companies would retire their machines, there was a company called MAI that would buy, that would buy them incredibly cheap and then sell them. And there was no service. There was nothing. You just got the machine and a wish of good luck. And I think that is going to start coming back. And because that was, that was a lot of what you saw in the eighties with secondhand tech shops. When you saw uh, this, the whole maker movement sort of rose out of that idea that you could inexpensively acquire old computer parts, old, uh, old electronics of all sorts. I think. That is going to make a big comeback because once you're done through a leasing cycle, I think that people are going to see, particularly I think Apple is going to be the one to do this bit most thoroughly uh, and actually probably their, uh, their secondary suppliers are going to realize that, hey, we can make a little bit more money off of this by dumping it out to a secondary, to a secondary reseller. And yeah, we might lose some on next level purchase, but we'll also lock people into our concept. And I think that is utterly key to, to particularly Apple and even to Microsoft to a degree is once you have bought in, no matter at what level, you are very much locked in and you can make a very strong case that once you have chosen Apple, or even Microsoft to a lesser degree, there is no more sunk cost fallacy. It is actually a sunk cost reality that breaking out to the other side is not an effective choice ever unless you can go below market value, which a secondary market could make very possible. Right. There's been a few times I've had an iPhone since the first one, except I skipped one year. And I want to say it was, it might have been the three. I don't remember. It might have been that phase cycle, and I went to Android. Android phones are are great; they're amazing now, you know. But before they were subpar in the sense that they couldn't compete with the iPhone. And the phone that I had, I had to carry around a charging cord in my pocket because the battery died every three and a half hours, almost on the dot, whether I used it or I didn't use it. So there was a pain point, obviously, because of the lack of technology for me there. But then also stepping outside of it was really difficult to step into that phone and go, oh, all those apps that I like to use, they either don't exist in this ecosystem or I have to buy them again. Oh, that sucks. And then, obviously, I went back to the iPhone, and I did the same thing for one year with uh, Macs. I, went, I bought a Surface Pro, and I used that for about six months until I wanted to put my fist through it because yeah. nothing against... Microsoft or anything like that necessarily, but more so the frustrations I think that I felt with that was I went into that computer with the expectations of Apple. And I think the same thing, like you said, people that are locked into Microsoft, when they get, if they get an Apple device, um, maybe with the exception of the iPhone, which seems to be fairly universal, if they were to get a Mac 
they, they probably feel some of the same pain and frustration, but like, what, I could do this on my, on my windows. Why can't I do it here? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what companies are really realizing now. You know, like you said earlier, when we first started talking about this, that Apple's realizing that they can sell things not based on innovation, but they sell things based on being Apple. And it's yeah. true. You know, like AirPods, I didn't really have a need for Bluetooth headphones, but knowing that I could move use of them very easily between the three devices that I have sold them for me. Like, Oh, I, I don't have to repair with that device and then pair it again to use it with that device. I just go in the menu and switch. Oh, okay. Now you sold me. You sold me on me being in Apple, not necessarily on the product. Mm -hmm. And that that's pretty magical. Yeah. And I, you know, I come down pretty hard on Microsoft a lot. And, uh, but what Microsoft understands better than Apple is that you can make something that does 200% of what people need. And it will sell no better than something that does 100% of what people need. <laughs> and they tend to shoot in between that 100 to 200 range, Apple always engineers for 250. They always want there to be things you can't use that you, you know, you just have no need to use. And I think that's a really fascinating idea to me that this idea that you have a plan idea that you don't need to use a lot of what you're getting. And I think that Apple does that a lot. And I think at times it is a good thing because they realize that they just need to give a lot and it's there. And being able to say that it's there if you need it to them is a selling point. Adobe does the exact same thing. Adobe is in the business of selling atomic fly swatters. It is, there is no need whatsoever for 90% of what's in Photoshop. For the average user, for the hardcore designer, there's about 20% that they will never even consider. (laughs) For the cutting edge artist who is doing work for the absolute avant-garde professional level advertising stuff, there's at least 5% they don't use on a regular basis. It is... Everything in the world right now is being over-engineered. It's just the level to which it is over-engineered. Previously, you know, you look at watches, for example. Everything was engineered to be exactly perfect at one, maybe at maximum three purposes. You know, with the exception of things like knives that can be used for hundreds of different things. But, you know, the essential purpose of a knife is to cut. So they're engineered to cut well. Now, if it's a good blade then it's a good knife. It's a bad blade. It's a bad knife. Now we're seeing things that are just like, I'm going to put, you know, like for example, iMessage, I'm going to put this in, this in, this in, this in, this in, I'm going to put seven things in this year. Most people won't know how to use them. They won't know how to find them, but if they find one and they like it, that's all I need. Yeah. You're like, Oh, you figured out how to do the tap back and give somebody a thumbs up on a message, but you never figure out how to do any of their stuff. That's all I need because now you're happy. It's kind of it's it's a fascinating way to look at the development of technology. That it's no longer about solving problems; it's more about 
uh, bringing pleasure. Yeah. Like we're in, we're in the age of technological hedonism. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. No question. <laughs> Especially here in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, and I think it's, it's even weirder than that. It's that we are a, we've become a society here in the Valley, at least, of individuals who know what they want, know that they cannot get it the way they want it, but they can get it with a large aspect of other things included. And that is seen as a positive now, which is very different from what's happened over over history. What book do you think I should read next? If you're looking to expand your view of what is the world we are living in but don't realize it, read Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut is always a great recommendation. <laughs> yeah. It is the book that best captures what anthropologically we are as a creature about how our our institutions feed into both our anxieties and our joys and it's just so slyly funny that it you don't realize that you're actually getting so much heavy theory about the human condition and human institution because you're laughing. Vonnegut's one of my favorite authors, but I've purposely not read everything oh. because I, I didn't want to run through everything and then feel like there will never be something new from Kurt Vonnegut for me. And Cat's Cradle is one that I have been avoiding, so maybe it's time I jumped in. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a book that I, I love dearly. It is, you know, if I had my Desert Island reads, it would be one of them. And uh, it's, you know, it's another one of those books that can never be well adapted because it is too perfect in what it is. Yeah, I have trouble believing Vonnegut can never be adapted well. There's too much of him in the book. Yeah, it's happened with Mother Night. That is, and then the series Welcome to the Monkey House did a good job with some of it. There's just, there's still something lost in the sense that Vonnegut is, it, 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 it more so in books like Slaughterhouse-Five for sure, but like 60% of the book is Vonnegut himself. Yeah. So unless you're going to insert a character playing the narrator, like in a play, you're going to miss all of that. You know, like him talking about, I can't remember what book it is, but where he talks about um, the death of his sister. And this is in the middle of a novel, but he's talking about himself and the death of his sister. And unless you have a way to insert those things in, all the pieces don't really fit together. And that's how you end up with, that Breakfast of Champions movie that Bruce Willis made, which was kind of awful. So bad. And like for every hit, you get like uh, George Roy Hill's Slaughterhouse Five, which is a wonderful movie, but it's not Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Right. There's so much missing from it. <laughs> yeah. It's a great movie. I, I adore it. But a lot of that is that it is a, it is a movie that, approaches the material more as a basis than as a foundation, I guess, is the way to look at it. Well, Christopher, would you like to tell everybody listening now that they've heard us chat back and forth exactly who you are and what you do and where they can find you if they want to hear more from you? Yeah, I'm Chris Garcia. I am a curator at the Computer History Museum, and you can 
read my blog posts that I do there and listen to my podcast from the archives at computerhistory.org slash at CHM. Uh, that's uh, the site for our blog posts. A lot of the, most of my public work goes out there through work. But I also do uh, my own podcasts, which are uh, numerous and varied, but the three that are sort of most prominent right now are Zodiac Speaking, which is about the Zodiac Killer, Three Minute Modernist, which is about modern and contemporary art uh, done in digestible three-minute chunks because I have a short attention span and I like chocolate. And then uh, the third one is called Registry, which is a part of what I call Clouds at Gunpoint, which is my film blog and zine. And all those are out there, easily found on Apple Podcasts. And then I also do a series of fanzines that uh, managed to win the Hugo Award twice. Uh, the two right now that are most active are The Drink Tank, which is a, a zine which is mostly themed, but it is more about things that I love and diving into them. The other one's called Journey Planet, which is all about a each issue is a different theme. It is consistency by being utterly separate for each issue, feeling nothing like the last. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's, uh, you can actually look at uh, both Journey Planet and the Drink Tank by going to journeyplanet.weebly.com. And we have issues with everyone from John Scalzi, Mary Robinette Kowal, Alan Moore, Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me have all written written stuff for us over the years. Brian Johnson, who did a couple of different wonderful films that feel very uh, Philip K. Dick. And we have an original Philip K. Dick piece or two. So 